are going to finish our series today called Loser. And if you haven't been here, um, all of the parts of our series are either on our website, anchoredhope.church, um, or it's on Facebook, or you can follow us on our podcast, like Stitcher and Apple and Spotify and all that stuff. But to catch you up, what we've been talking about is that today there's kind of a problem in our culture. There's three things that we can really easily identify, and they're this. The first thing is that everything is politicized, right? A line has been drawn down the sand, and it's like, choose. Which side are you going to be on? Are you going to be with this team, or are you going to be with that team? And everything's politicized, and everybody kind of has their, 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 their jersey that they wear on different topics and stuff, but everything's been politicized. And then the second thing is cancel culture, right? If you don't, if I don't agree how, how, how you agree, if, if, if your ideas and your opinions are different than mine, if your side is against mine, well, then I will just cancel you out. I mean, even though let's say you, you slip up, you do something wrong, I can just cancel you out. And I mean, I can discredit everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, every experience that we've had, every good thing, and I'll just, I'll cancel you out. And we do this all the time. This, I, this has even happened to me. I mean, we've, you know, and every pastor has. You have, you have one sermon, one sermon that people don't disagree, disagree with or people don't like, and they're like, I'm out. Really, out of the 362 sermons you've heard me say, this is the one. And it's like, the other 361, we're just going to completely disregard. You know, you liked all those. You agreed with those. Those were on your side. But then one, one thing we talk about, you, you don't agree with, so you're out. Okay, you know, we do that. We do that all the time. We do that with everybody. We do that with teachers. We do that with politicians. We do that with celebrities. We do that with family. We do that with all types of different people. We do that with our bosses even. If you do something that I don't agree with, well, then I'm canceling you out. You're dead to me, and I'm done. I'm going to discredit everything you've ever said or done. But the third thing is this, a version of Christianity that is in it to win it. And we say a version, but really what we mean is a perversion of Christianity, where it says, we've got to win. The world is against us. We've got to win. We've got to be top dog. The world's got to be how we want it. It's got to be one nation under God. It's got to be this way. We've got to control this situation. We have got to win it. But the thing that we've been talking about is that if we look at the life of Jesus, which the life of Jesus is who we're supposed to be, because as Paul said, Paul said, we are the body of Christ. So how did Jesus live is how we're supposed to live. And Jesus, when he came, when Jesus came, he did not come. He was not in it to win it. He came to lose. In so many different aspects, in so many different places, he chose to lose instead of win. He, he lost the debate. He lost the battle. He lost the fight. He didn't defend himself. He didn't put his fists up. And again and again and again, when we look at his teachings, we see a Jesus that talks about being peacemakers. We see a Jesus that talks about being meek. We talk, see a Jesus who talks about being merciful and forgiving, turning the other cheek, going the extra mile when you're required to go one mile, taking the shirt off your back when you've been asked to give your coat. That is the type of Jesus we see. And so those are the type of Christians we're supposed to be. And Paul put it so well in Philippians, he writes this letter to Philippi, the church in Philippi. And he had this great aspect on it because he was on the other side of the resurrection. So he's just able to take this and just kind of just put it perfectly in a paragraph. He said, who, he's talking about Jesus, being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Meaning he didn't take all of his powers and abilities like he could have and used it to win. He could have scared the crud out of people. 
He could have demanded his way. He could have changed everything with the snap of his fingers. But he didn't choose to do that. Instead, he took up a different position. Rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself a loser. He made himself a zero. He put himself in the home of a carpenter. He made himself in the lowest class possible. And he decided to come and to be what? A warrior? A king? A politician? No, a servant. By being the very nature of a servant, he, he made himself in human likeness, meaning he, he chose to put himself in a position where he would die, where he would age, where he would hurt, where he would be tempted, where he would be burdened. He did all of that to show you and I exactly how much he loved us. And so we've been fleshing this out and talking about what, what, what everything that this means because the thing we understand about Jesus is that when he decided to lose, the kingdom of God was able to win. He was able to win people over. People all of a sudden were, were changed, turned to God for the very first time. And Jesus made all of that possible through losing. And so as we begin to start to understand this and look at what he tells the disciples as the disciples even came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, what does it look like? What does it mean to be the greatest of all time? Show me how to be the goat. Show me how to be your best disciple. Yet he talks about being a child. He talks about humbling himself. He talks about being a loser. He talks about putting himself in need. He goes, that's what it takes. And the disciples, man, they never really understood that. But they should have so clearly because before them was the perfect example the most human the second to jesus example of what it looked like to be a loser had already been amongst them had already been around them and if they just would have paid a little bit more attention they would have understood what it took to be the greatest because jesus believe it or not actually did have a favorite jesus believe it or not did look at one of the people around him and go you know what that guy is the greatest of all time that guy is the example that everybody should follow the problem was is that that guy, nobody wanted to be. The problem was is that when you looked at that guy's life, everybody would say, I would never want to be that guy. Why? Because he was a loser. But that story is probably my favorite story that's recorded in the New Testament. And the story that I'm talking about is the story of John the Baptist. If you don't know, there's a lot of different Johns, okay, throughout the Bible. There's, there was John the Apostle, and then there was John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. And when you look at his story, it's kind of hard to understand because it's, it's spread out throughout the New Testament. If you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of these men were around at a different time and wrote their perspective. Of course, Luke, when you look at his gospel and you look at Acts, he was kind of a, a historian in a way. He was a Gentile, not actually a disciple. And so his is all based off of interviews. So he has an interesting perspective in Luke. But these were all written at different times. So you've got to look through the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the gospels and kind of cut out the sections where it talks about John. But when you put them all together... There is a beautiful story. There is a movie-worthy story there, and it is my absolute favorite, and I'm excited to share it with you today. But when we look at John, what you have to understand is that John first shows up in the Word, actually when Je before Jesus was even born. Remember when the angel came to Mary and said, you're going to have a baby, you're going to have Jesus, and this is who he's going to be? Well, Mary got scared. And so what she did is she ran to her cousin's house. She ran to Elizabeth's house. And they were cousins of some sort, related somehow. And so she ran to Elizabeth's house. And right there is when John actually shows up because Elizabeth was John's mother. 
And Elizabeth was actually pregnant as well with John. And that has a whole story with Zechariah. John was, it was prophesied. John was going to be a great man. John was going to play a huge, huge part in the gospel story. But nobody understood what it was. So when Mary goes to Elizabeth, she's scared, she's frustrated, she's a 15-year-old girl, she just got told she got pregnant, but she's never even had sex before. And so she goes to Elizabeth, and when she shows up, this is what John does in the womb of Elizabeth. It tells us this in Luke, it says, so Mary entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, John, leaped for joy in her womb. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. What happens next is Elizabeth, she looks at Mary and she goes, oh my goodness, Mary, something something special is happening here. Something incredible is happening here. You've got to understand that baby inside of you is a gift from God. That all started when John reacted in the womb. John leapt for joy. John moved. John kicked. And that was a sign to Elizabeth that this was legit, that this was something special, that God was behind this. So at the very beginning, as Jesus is even still in the womb of Mary, John is playing a part in this story. And so then, as you know, Jesus is born. Elizabeth has John. And so you got to think, we don't really know, but they're cousins of some sort. So understand this, John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins of some sort, first, second, third cousins of some sort. They were within distance of one another that they could visit one another. So when Jesus begins his ministry at about the age of 30 and John begins his ministry at about the age of 30, think about this. There are 30 years where we don't know what happened. But it's, it's a lot of historians, a lot of people who study this stuff say, they come on, they had to have known each other. They had to have seen each other. They were cousins, you know? I mean, they had, you guys know how family is. A lot of you guys have family around Troy, around St. Charles County. And I mean, you see your cousins. You go to family reunions. Obviously, Elizabeth and Mary were super, super close. If not family, they were at least very good friends. I mean, that was who she ran to when she needed a friend, somebody to give her confidence. She didn't tell anybody else about what was going on. But she told Elizabeth. And so a lot of people believe that, I mean, come on, they had to know each other. They were cousins. They were homies. They would at least have recognized each other and been somewhat of friends. And so then when we catch up to to John's story, we see that John has began his own ministry. And it says this in in John 1.23, it says this, it says, Uh, John replied to the words of Isaiah the prophet. He says, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. John was so impactful. John was such an awesome preacher, such an awesome speaker, that people actually believed he might be Jesus. He might be the Messiah. He might be the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament. So people started coming up to him and going, hey, man, uh, are you are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Savior? Are you the one that was prophesied about? That's how impactful, that's how good he was. And instead, you know what he always said? He goes, no, I'm just a guy in the woods, which he was. If you read a description, description of him, he sounds like a, a, a professional wrestler of some kind. I mean, he wore furs. He looked crazy. He lived in the wilderness. And he said, no, I'm just a, just a guy in the wilderness. I'm just a voice calling out, make straight the way of the Lord, meaning I'm just the one setting up for the guy that you've actually been waiting for. I'm just the opening act. I'm just the guy who's here. And he had this huge, huge, huge following, this huge following among people. 
I mean, he had people coming to him in the hundreds. And you know what was really interesting is that Jesus, uh, Jesus actually started to show up at John's services, these huge services. And he was known as John the Baptizer because he invented baptism, Christian baptism at least. He created this ceremony of taking these people as they began, as they uh, made the decision to become Christians, or really at that time they didn't know what a Christian was, followers of God. He said, well, then you need to be cleansed. You need to be born again. Let's, let's take this ritual that had been done over time in different areas but had never been done in the, in the Christian faith. He said, let's take this and let's, let's, let's cleanse you. Let's dip you into this water and bring you out. And so he took this ceremonial cleansing and applied it to the Christian life. To, to, to signify people's decision to follow God, but also to signify that they were reborn and a part of the community of God, part of the kingdom of God. So he starts this, and this is how he closes every sermon. He starts baptizing people and stuff. And then Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, that's when things really, really, really get interesting. So Jesus shows up, and John sees him. He recognizes him, he knows him, he sees his cousin, and I'm sure, 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 um, for 30 years around the dinner table in the household, it had been talked about amongst Mary and amongst Elizabeth and between John and between Jesus. John probably knew everything that Mary had been through. He probably knew the story before the story was even written down. And so when he sees Jesus, he knows exactly what's going on. That's his cousin, that's the Savior, that's the Messiah. And so he stops everything he's doing, and he points to Jesus. And he goes, that's the guy you've been looking for. This is how it's put in the word. It says, the next day, John, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look over there. That's the guy that you want. That's the guy that we've all been waiting for. Now, this is when things get crazy because John that was such a successful person. He had disciples. He had disciples of his own. He had guys who were following him around. And so when this all happens, all of his disciples turn to Jesus. And you know what Jesus does? Jesus, this is where Jesus' ministry begins. Jesus is going to make, you know, his disciples, he's going to pick his 12 guys that are going to be a part of his gang. And, you know, what would you do or what would you expect if you were John? I mean, John is just cooking. John is hitting on all cylinders. John has a following. John is a great speaker. John has the Holy Spirit in him. John invented baptism. And here comes Jesus. And I'm sure John at some point was like, that's my cousin. You know, hey, what's up, cuz? Hey, man, that's Jesus. I mean, you guys can call him Jesus. I call him cuz. You know, we used to wrestle together, you know, at Christmas. Uh, but anyway, you know, that's my cousin. Jesus comes in and, you know, he lines everybody up like a kickball team, like he's kicking a, picking a kickball team. And who do you think you would pick first? Who would you pick first? You'd pick John. You'd want John. If you're John, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm first draft for sure. Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, who do I got next to me? Peter. We all know how much of an idiot that guy is. You know what I mean? I mean, come on. It's going to be all right. I'm going to get picked. And you know who he picks first? He picks Peter, that ding-dong who would go on to do a lot of dumb stuff. He picks Peter. And then he picks another guy. And then he picks another guy. And he tells those guys, come on, we're going to go pick up some other guy. I mean, eventually he picks up Judas. We all know what Judas did. And you know who he doesn't even say a word to? He doesn't even talk to him. He doesn't address him. He doesn't hug him. He doesn't do anything. John, his own family, his own cousin, he just completely ignores him. And he takes 
his crew from him. He took his disciples. His disciples leave him and go, peace out. I mean, John right there, he lost his secretary. He lost his sound guy. He lost his guitar player. And they just pick up and they leave. And John just left. He's like, see ya. And he doesn't say a word. He doesn't gripe, doesn't complain, doesn't say anything. And there he goes. So then we, we, we go on a little bit ahead of the story. If you go to another gospel, you start to see a little bit more. Then all of a sudden, guess what happens? So John, he's the baptizer. He's got these great services going. He's reaching hundreds of people. And again, all he's doing is pointing people to Jesus, pointing people to Jesus, pointing people to Jesus. And do you know what Jesus does? Jesus starts his services. Do you know where he starts his services? On the other side of the river. So you got John starting services at 9 a.m. over here on this side of the river. And just west of him, at 9.15, Jesus is starting his services. And they can see each other. They can hear each other. And guess what Jesus is doing? He's baptizing people. He ripped them off. He ripped John off. That would be like if the Catholic church across the street started wearing hoodies when they preached and playing loud music and doing this, had a TV on stage. You better believe I'd be over there by noon going, y'all better knock it off. This is my niche, all right? Knock it off. Don't be doing that type of thing. You can't be short and muscular and acting all that way. No, that's my thing, all right? Leave me alone. The only pastor under 35 in Lincoln County. This is my thing. All right. I mean, come on. He he ripped him off. He stole his idea, stole his whole act. Now, this is where things get crazy. This is the point where even John, John's disciples, John's friends that he had left said, this is, this is, this is, this is bull. This cannot happen. No, no, this is, this is too far. And so they actually come to John and they go, can you believe this? Why don't you go talk to your cousin? Go get your mom involved. She'll straighten them out, you know. Go do something. This is, this is not right. And so this is John's moment. John, he could have said something, right? He, he, could have, he, he could have stood up for himself. He could have pulled his cousin aside. He could have got moms involved. All this stuff. This is what John says. Instead, John replied to him, A person can receive only what is given to them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but am who sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, and I must become less. Wow. They go, John, what do you think about this? You're getting ripped off. He stole our idea. He's not even having services on Monday. He's having services on Sunday. He's doing it. He's not doing it over there 10 miles away. He didn't even plant a campus in the town over. He planted a campus right next to us. And all the people are going over there because he's the show, because he's the man, because he's Jesus, and he's doing your whole thing. What do you think about that, John? He goes, man, it's not my wedding. I'm not the bride. I'm not the groom. I'm just the guy who goes and gets the coffee. I'm okay with that. I can hold the dress. I can be behind. I don't have to be in the picture. I can be in the background of the picture. That's okay with, that's who I'm supposed to be. That's the point of this all. The point is not about what I would like to happen. The point is not about me. The point is not my status. The point is not what I am getting out of this or not getting out of this. The point is not even what is fair or what's unfair or what's justified or unjustified. Here's the point of it all. It's him. 
and what he's come to do. So what I understand very, very clearly is he must become greater and I must become less. A loser, right? I mean, come on. Think about that. Think about what he gave up. His ideas were stolen. He's being mistreated. And he decides that it's okay. He's not bothered by it because he decides that that is what needs to happen. He has to lose so that the kingdom of God can win. He must become greater and I must become less. So then a short time later, he gets arrested. Because every time John preached, if you don't think that, poli- that preachers should get political, then you need to talk to John the Baptist. Because every time John spoke, he spoke out against King Herod. Not because he disagreed with his policies. He didn't talk about his policies. He respected the position which he was in. The problem that he had is that Herod was setting a poor example for the Christian faith. And the poor example that he had is that he decided to marry his niece. Blah. Right? Herod had actually decided that he was going to run off with his brother's wife, who is actually his sister's daughter. Get that? Okay? So his niece, that's all you need to know. His teenage niece, okay? He saw her on Instagram, he started to follow her, and then he said, I'm going to get with that. And he married it, all right? That's sick, all right? That created a huge problem. And so John, every time he got to preach, he said, let me tell you something. Don't be like Herod. Don't get with your niece. Does everybody understand that? And so this this didn't bother Herod. Herod thought it was hilarious. You know what I mean? Herod was like, yeah, whatever. Well, his teenage Instagram niece wife lady thing did not like it, all right? So she kicked up a fuss and said, you better go get him. You better go arrest him. I want him dead. This is making me look bad, okay, on Twitter. And so Herod decided, all right, well, whatever you want, boo. And so he went and got John. I'm making a lot of this up at this point, all right? Anyway, but that's what happened, okay? He got arrested because he spoke out against Herod. And so John gets put in jail. Now, here's what happened back in that time. You got to understand. You got put in jail, and you didn't have a court date. You were just in jail, and you didn't get fed. You didn't get taken care of. You didn't have a date. They really just hoped that you'd sit there, and eventually you would die. And, and, and if, if it got ever to the point where they decided to kill you, they'd kill you. But they really just left you in jail to rot and to die. The only way that you were kept alive is through people coming and visiting you and bringing you food. You, it, was, it was all on the support of people. People had to come to you, and they had to actually support you and to give you food. Now, what do you think would happen in this instance? I mean, John, who's doing a great job, who's cooking on all cylinders, Greatest preacher today, got a great thing going on with that whole baptism thing. He's rocking and he's rolling, and he's the cousin of Jesus. He gets unfairly arrested and put in jail. So what do you think Jesus did? What? This is Jesus, Jesus is what he did. It says when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he went full John Wick. First, he sent food from heaven because John was hungry and alone. Then angels to break his chains. Then he turned to his disciples and said, it's on like Donkey Kong. And then Jesus went and saved his cousin in prison. That's made up too. Uh, but 
but John, but John Wick may have actually been a disciple. That would have been the best disciple to pick. Uh, that's not what happened. Do you know what happened? Do you know what happened? This is what happened. This is what Matthew tells us happened. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake. That's real. <laughs> you guys are laughing because you're like, you made that up too, didn't you? No, I didn't. No, that's what happened. Cousin John got arrested. And what did Jesus do? He moved to a lake house. And he sat there. Did he visit John? No. Did he bring John food? No. Did he send his disciples? He said, man, I can't go, but you guys go. Get, take him this care package. No. Did he send angels from heaven, you know, to, 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 to sing him a song? To, did, did manna start flying through the gates? No. None of that stuff happened. None of those things happened. When Jesus heard what had happened, he moved to the lake. And that was it. And when I say he moved to the lake, he was about 120 miles away. He was a day's travel. It's not like it couldn't have happened. He was 120 miles away. He was a day's walk away from John the whole time. Think about how irritating that must have been to know that there was somebody out there who could help you, who could get you out of this situation, who could change your life and their family. There's somebody you grew up with. They are somebody who you have done a lot for, and they are a day's walk away, and they have all the ability in the world, all the power, and all the reason to help you, and they're on a lake getting a tan. Wow. Think about how much of a loser John must have felt like. And so he sits, and he rots in jail, and he's in this dungeon for over a year. The only reason he's being kept alive is because Herod forgets about him. The only reason he's being kept alive is because his few disciples he has left every single day are bringing him food, and they are keeping him alive. And finally, John reaches his breaking point, and he goes, this is enough. And so he knows that Jesus is near him. He knows that Jesus is in Capernaum, and he knows that Jesus is at the lake. And so he sends his disciples with a little bit of a message. And he goes, I want you to go find Jesus. And I want you to ask him something. I want you to tell him something. So they go. And the disciples of John go and find Jesus and his disciples. And they're uh, somewhere in Galilee. And they find him, and this is what the message says. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect somebody else? Now, first time I ever read this, I didn't understand it. But when you look at the whole story and the context, you know what that message means, right? You understand that. Today, the way we would say that is, you know, he sent his disciples to ask, hey, cuz, you going to come help me? Are, are, you, are you the Messiah? Are you the Jesus that we've been waiting for? Because, you know, it's real interesting. Uh, as I sit in jail here, it seems like you want to be the savior of everybody else but me. It seems like you're answering everybody else's prayers. You're out there healing and touching everybody and going to dinner with people. You're out at the lake and you're having a great old time. And I'm just wanting to know, uh, when are you going to be my, my, my Messiah? When are you going to be my savior? 
when are you going to be Jesus to me? Because I've done a lot, man. Remember that time when your mom showed up with my mom and my mom spoke life into your mom's life because of what I did in the womb? You remember how I set things up, how I showed up before you even touched the scene and I set everything up for you. I got the crowds together. I got the baptisms going and I did everything. And I set all that up. And when you came and you took it all from me, when you took my disciples, when you took my service, when you took my career, did I say a word? No, I didn't say a word, did I? And now here I am and I'm sitting here and I'm just wondering, man, when are you going to be my Jesus? When are you going to answer my prayers? When can I get what everybody else is getting? Can I get a little help here? Come on, cuz. Jesus, when are you going to be my hero? When are you going to come to me? And Jesus, he hears this. These disciples are standing there and this is what Jesus says to them. Jesus replied, go back. And report to John what you're hearing and what you're seeing. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. He goes, you know what? Go tell them this. And you know what? I just want to hit a pause button because this is such an important part right here. Notice Jesus gives a report to John, a success report, right? Here are, the, here are the quarter's numbers. And you know what he says? He says, the, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, lepers are cleansed, deaf can hear, the dead are being raised. You know what? You notice for a minute what he reports as victories, as wins. He goes, these are good things that are happening. You know what Jesus doesn't say? Jesus is going to go, well, go back to John and tell him, we had 3,000 people's butts in the seats at last service. We raised $10,000. Things are going really good. We're, we've got this many seats in the Senate. We've saved this many governors. Uh, the president is a Christian, it claims to be, and it looks like we're going to get a, a, a seat at the Supreme Court. So tell John things are going really good. No, those aren't the victories that he, he counts. No, th- those aren't the wins that Jesus counts in his report. What are the wins? What does Jesus identify as a win? He says, the lame are walking. Leopards are cleansed. Deaf can hear. Dead are raised. The good news is being proclaimed to who? The rich? No, the poor. See, here's the thing that we have to understand. It's not about winning. The church doesn't exist to win. The church exists to heal. When Jesus counts wins, he doesn't talk about authority. He doesn't talk about power gain. He doesn't talk about the people are on our side. Our side is winning. When Jesus talks about what a win is, he talks about people being healed. So we have to understand as Christians today, What we exist to do is not to win anything. What we exist to do is heal the people. What we exist to do is to be a light where people are able to walk again, where people are able to heal their marriages, where the dead are raised, when people are done, when people are at their end, when people are contemplating suicide and are so anxious that they're thinking about giving up. That is where we come in with the good news and people are able to be healed. It's not about authority. It's not about a position. It's not about power. Those aren't wins to Jesus. Jesus couldn't care less about those things. What Jesus cares about is healing and bringing healing to the land. And Jesus says, hey, go back and tell John this and see what John says. Go tell him people are being healed. People are walking again. The dead are being raised to life. 
That message didn't make any sense to anybody else. Not the disciples listening, not the Jesus' disciples, but I guarantee you when it got to John, it was a very, very clear message. Because what Jesus was saying in that moment in that time is, hey, John, remember the mission. John, remember the mission. Remember what this is all about? The whole reason your parents who couldn't conceive a child, why the angels said they would be able to conceive a child? Remember why you started what you started? Remember when you came to me? Remember what you used to say? Remember that this was all about healing. This was all about the kingdom of God growing. This was all about people hearing the good news. This was all about people turning to Christ. Well, John, it's happening. The blind are seeing. The leopards are being cleansed. The, the, the deaf can hear. People who can't walk are walking. We're, John, we're literally raising people from the dead, and the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. So, John, remember the mission. You are so close to the end here. Remember everything that you've said before, everything that you've preached about, everything that you and I were after. Remember what it's about. Do not let your pain, do not let this season of life, do not let this take your blinders off, take your target off of what we're actually after. Remember the mission. And Jesus says something so powerful, so personal, so important. This is what Jesus says to him next. He says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is anyone, John, who doesn't stumble on account of me. Here's what John was act, or what Jesus was actually saying to John. Blessed is the person who can lose so that God's kingdom can win. Blessed, happy, fortunate is the person who is willing to lose so that God's kingdom can win. So John's men leave. John's men leave. And then Jesus gathers everybody around him because Jesus was, is God in human form. He already knows what's going to happen. So as soon as John's disciples go off with this riddle that they don't even understand, but John will understand, Jesus gathers everybody around. He goes, hey, hey, everybody come here. All my disciples, team powwow, let's go, huddle up. And he says this to him. He says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist." Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You know what's so interesting is all these disciples, they wanted to be the goat. They wanted to be the Michael Jordan of disciples. They wanted to be the best. And they kept asking Jesus, what's the best look like? What do I got to do? What do I got to do? And Jesus takes this moment. He goes, everybody come around. You want to know who the greatest of all time is? the greatest to ever be born of any woman on this earth, the greatest second to me, the one I am most proud of, it's John. John is the greatest disciple who has ever lived. Right then and there, Jesus gave him all the credit he had never received his entire life, and John didn't even get to hear it face to face. And you know why Jesus called him the greatest? It's because he knew what would happen. He knew that the message would get back to John with it, with it, with, at the end of the day. And John would hear the message and he would understand. And that John would not ask for a single thing again. And he didn't. Because a few months later, Herod remembered that John was in jail and beheaded him and killed him. And Jesus said, John's the best. You know why? 
Because he's the biggest loser among all of you. He, he's such a loser that whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is, is greater than he. Meaning, even when we get to heaven, he's going to be putting people in front of him. That's how big of a loser he is. That's how awesome he is. That's how great he is. And I know that for a fact that when that message gets to him, he's going to remember the mission. And he's going to understand that I cannot come and save him. And I cannot come and rescue him. Because if I do, it will distract from everything else that I am trying to do for other people. And so John will understand that he has to die. He has to be, be beheaded. Because I have to continue on my mission. And it is not time yet for me to die on the cross. So he will have to die. And he will be okay with that. And that's exactly what John decided to do. John let it go. John chose to be a loser. John chose to not demand anything from Jesus. You know, for you and I, we have to understand this. Because so often as human beings, when we step into Christianity, we carry this mentality, this competitiveness to win, to have things be our way. We want to win. We want to be powerful. We want to be in authority. We want to be privileged. And so we fight for that. We fight for that as Christians, and we fight for that in the name of God with the Christian flag beside us. But the truth is, is there's nothing Christian about that at all. That Christianity is not about winning. It's about losing so that God's kingdom can win. It's not about winning authority or position or privilege or a seat. It's about healing people. And we have to understand, we have to remember the mission. And if you don't know it, our mission and vision are very, very sharp and very, very crystal clear. They're going to be right here on the screen. Our mission is to lead people to a growing relationship with Jesus. That's it, period. This is what we're after. This is what we want to do. And how we achieve that mission, our vision, who we want to be, is to be a church for people who don't like church. Because there have been a lot of people who have gone to a lot of churches and grown up in a lot of churches. And there were so many good things about that church. But the problem is, is that there are things that went down in that church where people fought for the wrong things where people fought about what the sanctuary looked like, or people fought about what the music sounded like, or people fought about the children's program, or people fought about a stupid cantata, and they made that the thing. And when they didn't get their way, they started canceling each other out, and then people started leaving the church, and people looked at that church and said, there's nothing different about this church than any other organization on the planet. Because clearly, everybody's just after what they really want, and it's selfish. And so we're trying to change that. And it begins in our culture, it begins in who we are, it begins in what we do. And our vision is to not ever be a place like that. To be a church for people who don't like church. Doesn't mean we don't like church, we all love church. I grew up in the church, I'm a pastor's kid, I love church. But the idea of church has turned people away from God, and that can't happen. We can't be in it to win it anymore, we have to be in it for healing. And that's what we're trying to help people do. We're trying to help people heal so that we can lead people to a growing relationship with Jesus. And the language here has been so specifically chosen because we're talking about not just leading people to Jesus, but leading people to a growing relationship with Jesus, meaning we don't ever think you've reached the mountaintop. 
Not me, not you, not the leadership team, not the staff. We are all growing in our relationship with Jesus, meaning we got to get back here every single week because we need more of him because I don't have it all down because I'm not even close to being the loser that I need to be. I'm not even close to being like John, the goat, the greatest of all time, because quite honestly, if I was in his position, I would be kicking and screaming the entire way. We have to remember the mission because we exist to heal just the same way Jesus did. What John struggled with at times but understood better than any of us is that we have to lose in order for God's kingdom to win. It's not about what we want. It's not about what we like. It's not about what we're comfortable with. And you know what? We're going to sit in seats sometimes that are going to seem so unfair that are going to be so uncomfortable, that are going to feel so awkward to us that we're not going to like that. We're going to go, oh, I don't like this at all. This is not me. This is not what I like. It would be so much better if we could just, you know, win this. But the problem is that we can't. The thing we have to do, the thing we have to understand is we have to lose. Our position and our job is that we must become less so that he will become greater. We have to understand that I have to be meek. I have to be hungry. I have to be willing to give my shirt when somebody asks for my coat. I have to be merciful. I have to be a peacemaker. But being the loser is how God's kingdom can win. And in the end, really, it's how I win. Because it's being a loser is when Jesus looks at me and goes, I am so proud of you. I'm so proud you you gave up your preference. You gave up your safety. You gave up your security. You, you, you gave up what you wanted so that my reputation could be good, so that my kingdom could be unique, so that my brand of love could be special, so special that it draws people of all different shapes and colors and cultures and, 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 and financial situations in. That's, that's what I want more than anything. So when it comes to us and our church, when it comes to you, last day we're going to talk about this. Are you willing to be a loser? Are you willing to become less so that he can become greater? Are you willing to suffer in the name of Christ so that his reputation would not be tarnished? Are you willing to live out this unique brand of love that is not about you? but it's about everybody else. Literally, sometimes it's more about your enemy and the person who's in the wrong more than it's about you. Are you willing to be that loser so that God's kingdom can win? So that maybe, just maybe, people who have been burned and hurt from the church, people who have been broken in their relationships, might maybe out of just nothing more than curiosity, step back into the walls of the church And hear the good news that God loves them. Who maybe, out of curiosity, would come to a trunk or treat, or a daddy-daughter dance, or a mobile food market, or an affordable Christmas shop, looking to be healed, looking for help, and could maybe find their Lord and Savior who would maybe walk into this place 
go, there's something different here. This place is different than the church I grew up in, different than the church I went to. This is a different brand of love. It's unique and it's friendly and it's real and it's genuine. Maybe if we live that way, there would be people in heaven because of our ministry and our work. Is that the goal? Is that what you want? Isn't that the mission that we're on? That's what I want more than anything else in life. And I would hope it's what you want too. So today as we pray, maybe what you need to do is make a decision, the same decision I have to make on a daily basis, to be a loser, to not, for you to become less so that he can become greater. Would you pray with me this morning? God, this morning as we come to you, convicted God we've all been guilty of it God would you help me to become less so that you can become greater would I give up everything for you my security fairness my finances my time my efforts God would you take all of that And would you just use it for your glory? God, it's not about me. It's all about you. I don't want to be in the way of your mission. I don't want to be in the way of your work. I just, I want to become less so that you can become greater. So God, would you show me all the areas of my life where I've chosen to not do that, where I've been selfish, where I've given you a bad name, where I've tarnished your reputation, where I haven't lived out your unique brand of love, would you help me transform me to be meek, to be merciful? Would you help me to remember the mission every single day? Would you help me, God, to be more like John, be more like your son, Jesus Christ? And God, I know that in this life, I won't ever receive the credit that I deserve or that I want. I won't ever hear it until I reach you in heaven. But God, I pray with all my heart that when I reach it there, that you will say to me, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's all I want. I don't want any applause. I don't want any trophies. All I want is to be told by you face to face that I did right by you. would you help me to do that let me not get in the way of anything that you want to do God